uh, I do know that my youth director uh, talked to Damien extensively after revival that we had, and he told him that he could not be saved, that he could not uh, give his heart to Jesus. And my youth director then tried to get him to take a Bible, and he made the statement that he could not take a Bible because if he did, the rest of them would get him. Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing the murder of three eight-year-old boys. The details may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. So this week we're going to we're going to go over the West Memphis 3 case and I feel like this is probably a case that you remember from your childhood cuz I mean I was I wasn't obsessed with it but I I've been following this case since I was 18 years old when it I'd happened. say you were obsessed with it for sure. And um, yes, I do remember it. <laughs> I remember I remember when it happened actually because I am the same age as Damian Eccles um at that time of my life. I was just kind of coming out of high school. I had um I was pregnant at the time and I had a friend in high school who was really into Wicca at the mm. time, so I started getting into it. So the fact that these crimes were being labeled satanic, even though Damien was a Wiccan, um, it just, at that age, it really piqued my interest. And then further than that, when I was in college at crim- criminal justice, I had to write a paper um, on a topic of my you know, choosing and I chose uh, Satanic Panic as well as Nature versus Nurture. And mm-hmm. West Memphis 3 was part of that paper that I wrote. So throughout the years, I have been really closely watching everything that's happened in this case. So I feel like this episode might be more of a me telling you the facts and the timeline as it's laid out, but then a lot of discussion around those facts and speculation and everything. As it was coming out, especially because more speculation comes out, obviously as things are being released. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and as more evidence is tested and um, we finally got a new judge in the case. So it was, um, um, it was exciting there for a few years, but um, so I think, I feel like this is probably going to be our first two-parter episode. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, so let's just get going. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people in, who are interested in true crime know this case. They've most definitely heard about it at the very least. So we're going to go over the crime and then we'll get into kind of where everything went wrong. So James Michael Moore, he went by Mike was born on July 27th, 1984. Um, Mike was the son of Dana Moore and Todd Moore. He had an older sister named Dawn, and Michael was a second grader at Weaver Elementary School. Um, He was a natural-born leader. He absolutely loved being in the Cub Scouts. Um, He would pretend to be a police officer. He was... um, like it's, I'm just a natural born leader who absolutely loved the Cub Scouts. He, he even wore his Cub Scout uniform when he didn't have to go to Cub Scouts. Like this boy loved that, mm-hmm. that whole thing. Um, the next little boy is Christopher Byers, also known as Chris. He was born on June 23rd, 1984. Um, he lived with his mom, Melissa, and stepdad, John Mark Byers. 
Uh, Chris had an older half-brother named Ryan Clark, who was 13 years old. Um, and Chris was also a second grader at Weaver Elementary. Uh, Chris had recently befriended Mike Moore and Stevie Branch, who is Stephen Edward Branch, born on November 28, 1984, um, called Stevie, or as his mom and little sister would refer to him as Bubba. Um, he was the son of Stephen Branch Sr. and Pamela Hobbs. So Pam Hicks Hobbs, I guess you would say, was married at the time to Terry Hobbs. Stevie was also a second grader at Weaver Elementary School. Um, he was a good student. Uh, all the kids liked him. Um, people knew who Stevie was because of his bright blonde hair and bright blue eyes. Um, his mom and his grandpa used to say he was going to be a heartbreaker when he grew up. Um, and he was also very friendly. He was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, so on May 5th, 1993, the three eight-year-olds had a normal school day. They'd been out riding bikes after school when they just disappeared. So the first report to the police was made by John Mark Byers, and that was around 7 o'clock at night. The boys were allegedly last seen together by three neighbors who in affidavits told um, the police they saw them playing together around 6.30 p.m. that evening. And they also said that they saw Terry Hobbs, which is Stevie Branch's stepdad, calling them to come home. Um, initial police searches made that night were limited. Friends and neighbors also conducted a search that night, which included... Um, an area of West Memphis that was known as Robin Hood Hills. This area was just a wooded area. There was a drainage ditch going through there. Um, parents didn't like their kids playing in there, but kids will be kids, and parents knew their kids did play in there, but it was kind of an unspoken, well, as long as you're out of there by dark, don't go in the water, stay away from the animals and stuff like that. But um, but there was a like a Cursory search of that area that first night. A more thorough search for the boys began around 8 a.m. on the next day, May 6th, and that was led by the Crittenden County Search and Rescue personnel. Searchers canvassed all of West Memphis, but focused primarily on the Robin Hood Hills, where the boys were reportedly last seen going into. And I'm going to kind of go over the timeline of the sightings that the police kind of put together really shortly after while they were still in the initial phases of the investigation they got a pretty good timeline of sightings by different neighbors and i'm going to go over that here really soon so we have a timeline of people seeing the kids but not really seeing who followed correct weird correct and the really terrible part about it all is that the information about the one stepdad terry hobbs calling them to go home, mm -hmm. that information didn't come out for years, years and years. Mm. So um, let's get into it. So the boys, like I said, were last seen heading towards the Robin Hood Hills area. Um, and despite a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder search of that area by human chain searchers, they found no sign of the boys. Um, around that same time, when the search began the night before, Around 8.42 p.m., workers in a Bojangles restaurant located about a mile from the crime scene um, reported seeing a black male 
who seemed mentally disoriented inside the restaurant's ladies' room. So basically, he this man came in, he looked disheveled, he was wet and muddy, he had blood on him, and he went to the ladies' washroom. Obviously, this piqued the interest of the staff there. Yeah. So the man was bleeding and had brushed up against the restroom walls. Um, the manager called the police and Officer Regina Meeks responded to the call, taking the restaurant manager's report through the drive through window. She didn't even get out of her car <laughs> to go in and look at it or nothing. By the time she got there, the man had left. And like I said, no police entered Bojangles that night whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. So around 1.45 p.m. the following day, juvenile parole officer Steve Jones spotted a boy's black shoe floating in the muddy creek that led to a major drainage canal in the Robin Hood Hills. And a search of that ditch revealed the bodies of the three boys. So basically, the officer went down into the drainage ditch, I guess, and went to pick the shoe up. And his foot knocked something and he just kind of moved his foot around and he dislodged a body. So yeah. this is how it was found. Um, he actually went on his hands and knees after that trying to find the other bodies. And that's sadly how how they were found. Um, the boys had been stripped naked and were hogtied with their own shoes. Um, so their right ankles were tied to their right wrists behind their backs. And the same with their left arms and legs. Their shoelaces. Their shoelaces yeah. were used, yeah. Um, their clothing was also found in the creek, and some of it was twisted around sticks and stuck into the muddy ditch bed. So everything was trying to be concealed. Mm -hmm. um, most of the clothing was turned inside out. Uh, two pairs of the boys' underwear were never recovered. Chris Byers had lacerations to various parts of his body, and... Um, they say mutilation to his scrotum and his penis. So at the time, the police actually reported at that time that Chris Byers' penis had been removed. Mm -hmm. um, when media, when the media reported that the bodies had been found, actually the day after the victims' bodies were found, the Bojangles manager, whose name was Marty King, thinking that there could be a possible connection to the bleeding man found in his bathroom reported the incident to police officers who then inspected the ladies' room. They finally came in. Like two days after the Bojangles incident, police finally went into that building. The man reportedly wore a blue cast-type brace on his arm um, that had white Velcro on it, which would have made it difficult to tie up and murder three young boys. Um, the manager gave the officers a pair of sunglasses he thought the man had left behind, and the detectives also took some blood samples from the walls and the tiles of the restroom. And nothing came of that? Okay. Never they mind. lost them. Oh, they lost. They were never tested. They just lost them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Failure. Very big failure. Fuck. So, like I said before, they they were able to put together like a timeline of sightings from the time the boys got left out uh, got let out of school until basically a half an hour before they were reported missing. So from the morning until about 2.45 p.m., all three boys were at school. Then 3 to 3.15 p.m.-ish, Michael Moore arrives at Stevie's house uh, with his bike. Around 3.15, 
Stevie and Michael leave the house to go ride their bikes. Um, Pam told Stevie to be back by 4.30 because she had to go to work. Um, the boys leave. They go west on South Macaulay and then north on 14th. So, and if you follow 14th, this is how you get to um, Chris Byers. Okay, so around 4 to 4.15 p.m., there was a witness that reported seeing Stevie and Michael with a bunch of other boys. He said they told him they were going riding. So at approximately 5.15 p.m., David Jacoby, who is a close friend of Terry Hobbs, Stevie's um, stepdad, um, he stated that he saw Stevie and two boys pass outside of his home um, going towards Robin Hood area. 5 to 5.30 p.m., other witnesses see four boys. Three of them were on two bikes and one was walking. They were identified as Chris, Mike, and Stevie. So who was the fourth? Um, I believe the fourth boy is going to be a son of a woman that we get into here soon. Okay. Um, Who did say I was with the boys that night. He embellished his um, time with the boys, but I believe that this is um, who this one kid is. Okay. Um, So... There were three boys, there were two bikes, and at that time, one of the boys was walking slash jogging behind the two bikes. Okay, so the approximate distance from where Stevie lived, which was near Jacoby's house, um, was about half a mile. So it was quite a distance away from where they had been seen before. Mm-hmm. So at 5.45 p.m., more witnesses, namely Otto Bailey and his wife, reported seeing Stevie and Michael. Um, They were wearing green backpacks and were riding bikes. Um, Michael told Otto that he was in a hurry and needed to leave. The boys at that time are going towards Mayfair, which is, again, towards the Robin Hood area. So at 5.45 to 6 p.m., Kim Williams, who also went to the same school as the boys, um, she is seen in the same location as Stevie and Michael until she is called in by her dad. Um, she claims to last saw the boys heading into Robin Hood Hills by way of the Goodwin entrance, which is right at the end of that wafer. Um, at 6 p.m., Ben Crafton, who's a neighbor, confirms that Kim was with Stevie and Michael until being called in by her father. And at 6 p.m., uh, Deborah Otinger says the boys meet up with her in her yard and eventually they go to into the woods via Goodwin. Not the girl, just the boys. So again, Deborah Otinger says that the boys went, she saw the boys go into the woods at 6 p.m. Also at 6 p.m., Dana Moore saw the three boys on two bikes on North 14th. So little discrepancy there. Interesting. Um, from 6 to 6.30 p.m., Chris, Michael, and Stevie are seen playing in the Clark's backyard, which is a few houses down from the Hobbs house. Jamie Clark Ballard stated that she heard Terry call Stevie back to the house. Again, it's a little bit of a discrepancy in the timeline. Mm-hmm. And these are witnesses. Yeah. Again, at 6 to 6.30, all three boys are seen by Cindy Rico uh, she said she saw them by the drainage ditch down past the Blue Beacon truck stop that was down by the bridge. So at 7 p.m., this is the last reported sighting of the boys when Chris Wall said that he saw Chris and Stevie riding bikes. He refers to one of the boys as a blonde. 
Um, it was 7 p.m. He knew it was 7 p.m. because Chris got out of night school at that time and he saw the boys after his class got let out. The boys were going towards the Robin Hood woods. Um, he reported that it was beginning to get dark. He was polygraphed about involvement and did not indicate deception to questions asking if he was involved. So like I said, after this, there are no more known sightings of these three little boys. Once the police had put together this timeline, the investigators began following up on tips that were coming in, as well as collecting evidence from the drainage ditch where the boys were found. Absolutely shockingly, there was no blood or other evidence found at or near the scene. Obviously, police were counting on evidence that should be found on the bodies to help them identify the suspect. But the no blood, nothing. So the investigation was very much botched right from the very beginning. Starting from the moment the boys' bodies were located, the bodies had been removed from the water and placed on the adjacent embankment, possibly disturbing physical evidence or otherwise contaminating the scene. Although the bodies were discovered at 1.30 p.m., investigators didn't call the coroner until 3.58 p.m. Um, by the time the coroner arrived, Fly larvae uh, were already present in the nostrils and eyes of the victims. Laying in the open air in near 80 degree temperatures accelerated the decomposition of the bodies. Luminol tests, which normally reveal the hidden presence of blood, were not performed at the scene until six days later. Also, uh, law enforcement chose not to really even look into the victims' families as the starting point of the investigation, as is the norm. We all know this. If your child goes missing, the police will start from the inside out. Um, I think there's some statistics saying that usually it's somebody the kid knows. Um, but they didn't do that in this case. None of the early interviews with the parents were ever recorded. Um, investigators kept minimal notes and omitted pertinent details, including criminal records. Um, one of the stepdads was not even interviewed until, I think, and you just think here, I agree. I want to say on record, he wasn't interviewed on record for 14 years. 14 years. Yeah, that's just crazy. It is crazy. It's and, unacceptable. And not only that, we know that Chris and Michael lived basically across the street from each other, I want to say. I might have to double check that. But anyways, they the, the police interviewed everybody on that block. The two boys lived. Um, now, Terry Hobbs, Pam Hobbs, and David Jacoby lived a ways away from them, a couple blocks away from them, and they were, and their neighbors were never canvassed. So the little girl that saw Terry call the boys home, she was never interviewed or questioned. Her parents were never interviewed or questioned. Um, they basically just volunteered the timeline information when they were asked, but they were never asked anything specific. And Basically, that information was never provided until years down the road when she realized that maybe the police, she became older and she realized maybe the police really don't know. Like maybe nobody said anything. I should probably say something. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Um, so the state of the boys' bodies quickly inspired rumors that a satanic cult was responsible. Um, the crime scene's location in the woods 
the nudity, the positioning of the boys' bodies, and especially the castration of Chris Byers caused concern about Satanism among the locals um, and also among the police as well. This is in an area that was considered part of the Bible Belt. Yeah, it was a very religious area. Very, very religious area. Um, And within days of the murders, uh, Gary Gitchell, who was the chief inspector, the West Memphis Police Department, informed the public that the police were considering a number of possible explanations for the murders, one of which was cult activity. Publicly. And what a different time that was, let me tell you, because it was all the rage. I remember this clearly when everybody was like, we knew it was just going to be a matter of time before Satanists did this kind of thing. And people truly, honestly, wholeheartedly believed this. Oh, for sure. Especially when you're like that religious. Mm -hmm. So throughout the investigation, the cult theory overshadowed more traditional theories, such as the speculation that the murders were committed by someone who knew the boys. Um, This was also in the midst of what was known as satanic panic. Uh, Basically, satanic panic is a moral panic consisting of over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of ritual satanic abuse, sometimes known as ritual abuse or ritualistic abuse, organized abuse, or uh, sadistic ritual abuse. Starting in the United States in the 1980s and spreading throughout many parts of the world in 1990s and even still some today. Um, Even though it is more, I don't want to say it's socially acceptable to be a Satanist, but the occult, paganism, Wiccan, all of these things, they're maybe not acceptable to some factions, but they're not as people aren't as afraid, I don't think as they were back then. What do you think? Do you th- like, maybe I'm wrong. I no, I, I think that people are a lot more accepting because a lot of people um, veered away from religion, but I guess a lot of people went into religion who weren't raised that way. So, I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but around me and in, in my community, in my society, it is very much non-judgmental of that stuff because we don't really see that level of religious mm-hmm. um I mean, families, but this is America too. And I we mean, have to remember even here, very... it doesn't matter where you go. Like they're, they were, they were hyper afraid of this stuff because of things like graffiti, like people spray painting pentagrams on an underpass and, and stuff like that. And rumors, there was nothing concrete that. I, yeah. I think that, it's more popular in some other areas. Like, um, I would believe that in Mexico, you know, they do think that a lot of things can, especially religion, can drive from the devil. Like the mm-hmm. other story we did, they truly thought that it was the devil's work mm-hmm. and that's what happened there. And I feel like as a whole, Canada has more atheists and um, alternative belief yeah. lifestyles. Yeah. And I mean, if you see a pentagram spray painted on an underpass around here, I don't think that's enough that's going to stop the community and say, oh my God, we have Satanists living around us. They're probably more thinking punk kids. I was literally, I was like, like, yeah, no, like a punk kid. That's what, yeah. It's not that big of a... Jerry Driver was a juvenile probation officer in the Crittenden County who believed that there were 
a satanic cult in the area. Much of that belief was a result of his dealings with Damien Eccles, a teenager placed under his supervision until the age of 18, after having been arrested for burglary and sexual misconduct. Um, the more that Driver interacted with Damien, the more convinced he became that Damien was involved in a satanic cult. Damien always denied any connection with Satanism, but did admit to believing in and practicing Wicca, like I said before. Um, Driver shared his suspicions with the West Memphis police, and this guy, like Jerry Driver, he was a religious obsessive, believing that there was a Satanic cult um, operating in West Memphis. He, he believed that there were animal sacrifices going around that people were eating dogs and just to me absolutely bizarre things but I didn't live in that area in that time I, I was alive and um, an adult at that time and still to me it seemed outrageous but these people believe this stuff well if that stuff was happening something would have been done about it before this mm -hmm. that is very much stories to set up and support them wanting their narrative mm -hmm. it's supporting their narrative if dogs were missing or found like carcasses and stuff like that you the something would have been done people would have set up You'd something think. to find that it, and that's there's no way there is no way no i mean it's just it's on the it's on the fence of ludicrous to me like just well just and also like you said the two the the only things not found of the boys was like two pairs of underwear right yeah to me i believe there was one sock also missing and one shoelace i want to say was missing I don't feel like the underwear are just like a coincidence. I feel like wherever those are, that is who did it. And that should have been such a telling sign for police when looking into Damien and all these other people that if they searched their property fully and especially like their, their Satanists and they would have altars and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you're telling me that they didn't ever find this stuff. It's like, okay, you're probably sniffing up the wrong tree. Right. Yeah, like, it's just, it's absolutely mind-boggling. How this one went, yeah. yeah. So going back to this Jerry Driver, he was the first, he was the very first person um, to suggest that Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin were to blame for the murders. He would spend his time driving around in a police cruiser looking for supposed signs of cult activities. Um, like I said before, that and all that really amounted to was graffiti most of the time. And he kept tabs on every teenage outcast in town, especially the Goths, who he insisted were likely to be involved due to, um, you know, having spiked hair and such. Like, just ridiculous, this guy. So when it came to Damien, though, Driver was obsessed to the point of stalking him across state lines. He would follow him around and harass him at every occasion, even going so far as to wait at a Greyhound bus stop for Damien to return from... Um, out of state so that he could arrest him for breaking his parole even though the police department had granted Damien permission to return home without issue um, the man was obsessed perhaps to the point of becoming mentally uh, unstable when it came to Damien 
a little more than a year after the arrests, in addition to his already troubling behavior, Jerry Driver was himself arrested for grand theft, which he served time for. And just a day after Driver had tipped Damien into police, they conducted their first interview with him. So that would be on May 7th. But no notes were taken during this interview. Um, the following day, a different detective, Bill Durham, went to question Damien again, and he found him at his best friend's Jason Baldwin's house. Damien and Jason tell them they've never heard of any of the three boys who were killed. But then two days after that, on May 10th, Damien uh, did not have a lawyer. He was interviewed at the police station by Lieutenant Sudbury and Detective Brian Ridge. Um, during the interview, Damien confirmed that he was part of a group who practiced white witchcraft. The detective noted that Damien wore a pentagram necklace. The detective asked Damien what he had heard about the three murdered boys, to which Damien answered with what he had read in the newspapers and from what he had heard around town. Remember, this is a small town. Rumors are going to run rampant. For sure. Um, Damien agreed to take a polygraph test. And the detective's report said that the test showed deception. So now we're going to go over the questions that were asked of Damien in that polygraph um, examination. I'm going to be asking the questions and Bree will be supplying Damien's answers as he answered them. Um, remember, he's told to answer yes or no. Um, so a 10-question polygraph test was formulated and three polygraph charts were conducted. The test contained the following relevant questions. At any time, Wednesday or Wednesday night, were you in Robin Hood Hills? No. Were you present when those boys were killed? No. Did you kill any of those three boys? No. Do you know who killed those three boys? No. Do you suspect anyone of having killed those three boys? No. <laughs> so... It is the opinion of this polygraph examiner that this subject recorded significant responses indicative of deception when he answered the above listed relevant questions in the matter noted. Conclusion. Deception noted. So now I would like to say, I've seen the chart that shows the responses to these questions. I've seen the baseline. You can see that his body is doing some funky stuff throughout no matter what the question is this kid is scared okay the only spike in the graph that you can see clearly that's you know outside of the norm is question 10 and what is question 10 can we use our logic and go back to question 10 do you suspect anyone of having killed these three boys no you probably have your own suspicions by that time, no matter who you are. Not just that, it's the wording of the question. Do you suspect anyone of having killed these three boys? And he said, no. Well, somebody did. Yeah. Somebody did. Yeah, so it, was, it was no. a, probably a hesitation. Yeah. Like, well, like even like a little bit of confusion on a question can cause somebody to be like, eh. That's right. Like, eh. thinking about the wording of it, well, of course, somebody must have done it. Yeah. And, I mean, who knows what else he struggled with. Obviously, if you're, you know, he probably had things like anxiety and stuff like that. Because he I've heard, heard him talk, yeah. And that alone can, you know, yeah. mess with it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, 
So now on May 12th, police question Pam Eccles, who's Damien's mom. Uh, she tells them that on the night of the murders, Damien was at home with her, talking on the phone to two girls who lived in Memphis. Sometime after May 12th, Detective Don Bray interviewed a woman named Vicki Hutchison. She was a truck stop employee. Um, Detective Bray asked her if she knew about rumored cult activity in the community. Now, I've heard that Vicki first approached the West Memphis Police Department with her eight-year-old son, Aaron, who I believe um, was the fourth boy that was seen by that first witness. So this is what I've heard that Vicki took her eight-year-old son to the police department, um, stating that Aaron was there when the boys were murdered, but that he got away. Uh, basically, the police looked into this, but decided the boy was lying for whatever reason. And I've also heard that Vicki had pending charges over writing bad checks, and that she volunteered to help the investigation, stating that she would ask around, and Hutchison agreed to play detective. And that is a direct quote, quote, unquote play detective. <laughs> Either way, this was the direction the police decided to go. So May 19th, Vicki Hutchison, a private citizen and a volunteer detective conducting her own investigation of the case, travels with Damien and Jesse, according to what she later tells police, to an esbat, which is a gathering of witches, in a field north of Marion, Arkansas where she sees about 10 young people um, with arms and faces painted black, taking their clothes off and touching each other. <laughs> um, Jesse Miss Kelly, who is borderline handicapped, his IQ is between 67 and 75. So Jesse is Vicky's neighbor. Um, and this is how she actually met Damien, she asked Jesse to introduce them because she was into um, witchcraft. So this is how she kind of got in there. Um, but she says that um, Jesse accompanies her and Damien to this esbat. At some point, the, the touching and the orgy that was going on makes her uncomfortable. Um, so she asked Damien to take her home. And they leave Jesse at the esbat. And has anybody else like no stated that this was never so out of more than 10 people not a single one said nope. yeah nope that's what we do yeah nope and Nothing. you know that there's at least one who would be proud of something like that absolutely like usually especially a boy like a young boy yeah and usually the people that are I mean, I don't even want to get into it, but the people that are going to go to these esbats or these gatherings and they're going to have orgies and if this stuff is really going on in that area, they're proud of their religion. They are practicing their religion. Um, I don't think that, especially since Damien was so open about being Wiccan, um, the entire Wiccan community stepped up for him. I don't think back then they wouldn't have stepped up and said, this is not true or this is true. I believe it never happened. I don't believe it was even in the area. For sure. Yeah. 100% a figment of Jerry Driver's imagination. Yeah. And if it was something that happened, I think that somebody would have stepped forward to say, yep. Yeah. And I mean, not even, not even that, but Damien never had a car. He never had a driver's license 
and she gave a description of the car that Damien picked her up in and took her home with. I mean, she was lying. She was mm-hmm. lying. And she actually, years down the road, she actually does admit that she was lying. Okay. Um, but we'll touch on Is, that a little bit later. Was she older by that time when she admits that she's lying? Oh, like yeah. an old lady? Not, like, not old, old, lady. old, but like yes. 50s. You bet. Okay, I've seen that. You've seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, okay, May 27th, 1993, police interview Vicki Hutchinson again, who tells them of evidence suggesting Damien and Jesse were involved in both cult activities and the murders of Stevie, Chris, and Michael. Aaron, who is Vicky's eight-year-old son, tells police that he and three murdered boys often visited the Robin Hood woods together and that they had um, at times seen five men in the woods sitting in a circle, singing songs to the devil, um, and doing what men and ladies do. This woman should be charged with child abuse for plugging that information into her kid and making him lie. Yeah, it's weird. I don't think an eight-year-old boy comes up with that stuff on their own. Well, no. No, if anything, she was ranting at him or something, you know, going on one of those or tangents. Or talking about it around him. Yeah. Going on a tangent in her home. Like, those that they sit around, they do their satanic mm. rituals. And, yeah. So, knowing that the police were already focusing on Damien, uh, Vicky asked her neighbor, Jesse, about the brooding teen and his occult connections. Um, Jesse told Vicky that he really didn't know much about Damien other that he was like a weird person. Weird. Um, and then they decided to get together and do. Yeah. She actually, she actually, um, faked an interest, a romantic interest in Damien to get Jesse to, um, arrange a meeting. Um, at the suggestion of the police, Vicky hid microphones in her house and borrowed occult books from the library to make Damien feel more comfortable around her. Um, but, Damien made no incriminating statements whatsoever. Um, so June 2nd, police give Vicky a polygraph interview and police report that she was being truthful. So that's kind of proof that polygraph tests don't work because yeah. uh, she has since admitted yeah, to lying right. and then Damien has stuck by his truth. Mm-hmm. It's a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird. Yeah, so June 3rd, convinced by the polygraph results that they had um, their murderers, police question Jesse, Miss Kelly, about the murders. They tell Jesse there was a $35,000 reward for information leading to convictions in the case. Um, In a polygraph interview, Jesse initially denies participating in either satanic rituals or the murders, but Detective Durham tells another officer that Jesse is lying his ass off. After hours of harsh questioning by Gitchell and Bren Ridge, um, Jesse begins to tell the officers what they want to hear, that he and Damien and Jason committed the murders. Um, police are troubled by inconsistencies, um, just things that Jesse was saying that were not accurate. Like he said that the murders occurred during the daytime when they were actually done at night or that they tied the boys up with rope. Um, when they actually used the boys' shoelaces. They basically worked to shape Jesse's story to match the known facts of the case. Five hours after picking Jesse up, police begin taping Jesse's confession. So they spoke to this boy before this, and then for five full hours, making 
about 12 full hours of conversation and, and interview without any recording or transcription or anything being done. Just the police with Jesse because Jesse's dad said it was okay. So they spoke to this boy, like I said, 12 hours, but less than half is recorded. But even in the recording, there are still major issues with the story Jesse is giving to the police. Jesse's lawyer, Dan Stidham, I guess it's Dan Stedham, argues that Jesse made a false confession and called witnesses to explain how or why this can happen. I do believe that Jesse falsely confessed, um, though I know there are valid arguments as to why some people do believe he was there with Chris, Michael, and Steve uh, when they were murdered. Um, but to me, I can, like, you listen to the confession and the inconsistencies, and you can actually hear how the police walk him to where they need him to be. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of put it all together at the very end to make a, a smooth flowing confession that they can play for the jury. So again, on June 3rd, 93, authorities request search warrants to search the homes of Jesse, Damien, and Jason. And they got the search warrants. They're issued. And also on June 3rd, police arrest Damien, Jesse, and Jason. And they charge each with three counts of capital murder. All about rumors. Yeah. And like I said, the big thing for them was the polygraph that he supposedly failed. I've laid eyes on this. I'll see if I can link it into the show notes. I'm not 100% sure. Um, if, I, if I can find a way, I will. Um, but literally, you can tell, even his baseline is you know, all over the place. He is a nervous kid. The only one that jumps is that, do you suspect anyone of having murdered these three little boys? Yeah. And that, to me, can be subjective. Absolutely. So, and I mean, this is kind of where, it's unfortunate that this is where the story starts. These three little boys are forgotten. From this point forward, the three murdered Little eight-year-old boys are forgotten. People call Jesse, Damien, and Jason the West Memphis Three, the forgotten West Memphis Three, Stevie, Michael, and Chris. Um, Nobody was actually out for justice for these three little boys. I'll say their parents were, but they were so blinded and trusting. They were so blinded. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, like it's the perfect spot to end part one Mm -hmm. because part two, we're actually, like you said, the story starts and we're going to really get into just so much shit. And like, I'm sure everybody knows that, you know, that Damien is released and Mm -hmm. they're all released. They're all out. And. Nobody right now is serving time. The, the three... But... Yeah. Police do their things to not say that they're innocent. And and I mean, the, it's the evolution of not even just the case, but mm-hmm. just of um, Arkansas and jurisprudence there where judges want to move up into different positions and they get elected and they get moved and pr- prosecutors get um, either demoted or, or transferred. On. Yeah. So... The main issue with the case is through all of the appeals and everything that was going on, even during the trial, the the prosecutors and the judge were absolutely convinced, unwavering, not even willing to consider 
any other alternative yeah. uh, scenario. So it wasn't until things started moving um, that we were able to find something. And I, I would like to say, before we end this, back in 1993, 94, 95, and so on, even through the documentaries and everything, I was never free the West Memphis Three. I was never these guys are innocent. I was always on the let's let's have a trial and with the evidence and show us that these guys did it. Yeah. Let's prove it because it's not proven. You know what I mean? Totally. If, if nothing else, give them a new trial. Let's present all of the evidence because I mean, I still to this day, I'm I'm confident that they're innocent, but I don't know because there's never been there's been evidence showing that they weren't there. You know, they can prove or they can't even just there's no evidence at the scene showing that these boys were there. Right. So I know it's 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 a hard one. And it's kind of just like what each individual thinks. And I mean, mm -hmm. you're right. Like nobody will ever really know. But I think it's safe to say that they in my opinion, probably didn't do it. But we will get more into that in part two, especially trial, all of it. And present day, because, I mean, it's not over for these totally. guys. It's not over for these guys. They want to be exonerated. So yeah, they're still, they're doing Fighting what they Fighting the can. fight. Totally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we will see you guys on the next chapter slash part two. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. Check out our TikTok where you can find interesting photos and content on all released episodes. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube at True Crime Story Podcast where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye! Bye.